the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. Another welcome back. One to my good friend, dear friend, Hugh Hallman. He is the former mayor of Tempe. He is an attorney in town. He is an educator. He is involved in lots of different interesting things. Uh, A civic activist, one might say. And he's been out of town, out of country uh, for uh, the last couple of weeks. So welcome back to you, Hugh. Thanks for uh, allowing me to be back on the air with you. Uh, Share anything you want from what you learned in your travels abroad, but I thought I would set you up. It's kind of been a theme of the day. I was um, you uh, I think you heard my monologue. I also had an interesting interview with the chairman of the House uh, Judiciary Committee for the Arizona State uh, Legislature, a fabulous uh, man, Representative Wynn, whose family uh, he came here just a couple weeks before the fall of Saigon. Tremendous story. And he's sponsoring some legislation to help go after uh, the fentanyl. Uh, problem here. He's getting a little bit of resistance, which is untoward and undue. You know, some people, this is why we can't have nice things is the phrase I want to, I want to say, you know, people, people get in the way of, of important action. Uh, the, the, the quote I wanted to throw your way to take it on any issue or any direction you want is one of my favorite from C.S. Lewis. The use of fashions in thought is to distract men from their real dangers. Um, I think that that could speak to a lot of things right now, and I'll throw it open to you since you've been gone for so long and probably have a few things bubbling up. I was all of 18 miles south of the Russian border uh, between Russia and Kazakhstan. Uh, For your listeners, yes, you've heard Kazakhstan. Can you spell it correctly sort of thing? (laughs) Um, And in that location watching what the news feeds were about what's going on in the U.S. And the great advantage is there's a bit of a filter that gets put put on in that only the most important stuff that's important internationally uh, comes over and is disseminated. And that's somewhat useful so that we can get rid of the noisy stuff that distracts us, your point being, the fashion of the day, Do black lives matter? And uh, what is a uh, coup versus a protest? And uh, when is violence, et cetera? All that that consumes us in these short order periods. And it was interesting to me that what was being reported was the debate about the U.S. debt ceiling. No kidding. Probably more there than here. Correct. And the reason for that is because... The failure to raise the debt ceiling would have some significant international market consequences because there's massive investment in U.S. debt abroad, but also because the world economy still does depend on how the U.S. is performing. The old joke about when the U.S. gets a cold, the rest of the world gets pneumonia. Um, And so the world pays a lot of attention to what we're doing fiscally. And the interesting thing was the juxtaposition in that reporting and a fairly equal basis that the left is screaming about, we must raise the debt ceiling or we'll default, and that default will cause 
terrible consequences to the U.S. and worldwide for a default that is not to occur for another four or five or six months. So the left's beating that drum as if that's the important issue today. And the right response was, we have to fix our spending. And that the price of the McCarthy uh, being speaker is that he'd agreed that that's going to become a serious issue. The interesting thing to me was the traction that that seems to have gotten, that debt is now back on the table as an important issue in the U.S. Why do I say that? Because of the left response that I'm seeing now. On my return, I'm seeing the left say, yes, it may be true, but it's Donald Trump's fault that we have such high debt. So the left now wants to blame all of the spending that took place under Donald Trump's reign as Donald Trump's spending. Not that it was the cohesive combination of right and left deciding to spend $6 trillion on COVID. Or a house that was run by Nancy Pelosi where all bills get started, and all Senate, spending bills start. And know? a Senate controlled by the D's as well. So you had the, 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 the presidency was for once in a while controlled by a, a Republican. But the legislative branch, where all of that occurs, has been controlled by the left. Well, we've seen this game before. We've played this game times. ourselves, yeah. that whoever's in control of the other branch is the one that's at fault. Well, you know what? I don't care anymore. Right. What I'm thrilled by, as a fiscal conservative who's been concerned that we lost track of this, on this show, it was you and me and my son, Lewis complaining about the fact that the U.S. was spending $6 trillion and and belittling our then-president, Donald Trump, for playing along and not fighting it right. as hard as he should have, That's in my right. view. Because nobody thought debt mattered and hadn't mattered for a very long time. And that that subject is now back on the table is an important one. And seeing the left now in Congress pointing to Donald Trump as the reason debt is out of hand, fine. I don't really care. What I do care about is that we all now need to say, you're right, Ms. Pelosi or her successor. Um, debt is a problem. Now what, are we going to agree to do something about it? Because the price of uh, the debt ceiling change is going to be we're going to do something permanent about debt. Now, I've long advocated something that never gets any traction, and it makes me sad. Uh, during Richard Nixon's tenure, we had the uh, line item veto, mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court eventually said you can't do that. The reason it was important was that it put into the hands of the executive some ability to stop out-of-control spending. Now, think back. We're talking about administrations where being over budget by a few hundred million dollars was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Let me, yeah. Now we're trillions of dollars over budget. I mean, literally, it's crazy. And we were arguing in the, in the early 80s during the Reagan administration on hundreds of millions of dollars, which is now a rounding error in the current budgetary concern. That's why I've been so concerned. I grew up in an era where $100 million in savings mattered and that being over budget by that kind of an amount as a percent was a big deal. We were talking, you know, 5% of the U.S. budget or 3% of the U.S. budget. And now we're talking 50% of the U.S. budget is carried by debt. That we have now gone back to that point is a huge improvement as a fiscal conservative, as a conservative. Gone back to the point, gone we're back to the point where we're now that matters. matters. Yeah. And so let's not squander that win by arguing with the left about whose fault this is. Let's take the win and say, now what are we going to do about it? And that one point is the arc, I guess, I'd 
advocate for on this show and elsewhere, and you've been doing it as well, on what we're doing to children. Yeah, we both point to the fact that the pandemic treatment has put our children back uh, in into terrible position as the most um, advanced society on the planet in human history. How can we still claim that uh, mantle when we have gone backward in child education, in child well-being, in life expectancy, in all the measures of what is a successful society? We've gone backward and not because we had COVID. As we know, the COVID numbers were, as we were arguing for two years and being uh, ostracized, being well overstated. People who were dying with COVID were counted as people who died because of COVID. They're very different things. It's the same thing as I died with skin or because of my skin. That is, did I have skin cancer or did I die with skin on? Most people die and still have their skin, but it's the same point. That's what how COVID was being treated. And that idiocy has cost us children's lives, not because they got COVID, but because they've died from alcohol and drug abuse. Uh, and yes, I'll say drug abuse, not drug use. Thank you very much. Um, and they've become suicidal because of depression and all the other things that have visited upon us, that we've had a society change from caring about our children to using our children as swords and shields in political debates. That's unconscionable to me. Well, you have done what I just talked about on the debt ceiling issue and the debt issue, which is to say, let's just take the win. Debt is now an issue again. Let's say, okay, what are we going to do about it? And start moving forward on a positive message how to do that. And you have brilliantly begun the conversation on we know many of the causes for drug abuse, overdose, and death in children and suicide in children. Let's start doing something positive about it. Let's get ourselves out of the worst drug addiction problem we've ever had in this society. And it's you reporting that, nobody else. Reporting the fact that we're at the highest level ever when 1979 used to be the high watermark. We've hit that new high watermark. Let's do something positive about it. And I'd like to continue on that. Yeah, I'm happy to have you do so. And thank you. We missed you. Forgot how long how long you've been gone and how much we missed you. I am and how long I'll go on without interruption. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Um, welcome back, Hugh Holman. Uh, don't go away. Uh, Hughes loaded for bear and has a lot more. And we can talk, by the way, about the connection between learning loss and finances. As I go to break, consider the work of Eric Hanischek at Stanford, who has analyzed that the learning loss suffered to COVID will cost this country thirty trillion dollars. trillion over the next 100 years. Think about that. You keep abusing children, you keep abusing the rest of this country, too. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Hugh Hallman. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth, delighted and privileged and honored to be joined by uh, Hugh Hallman, who is uh, here for his regular Tuesdays. He's been uh, gone for a few weeks, and we're delighted to have him back. I think there's maybe one more trip in the offing, but uh, we will restore regular order shortly. As we went to break, I was connecting a little bit of the economic issue that Hugh was raising with the way we have treated our children. Uh, Eric Hanischek is a great, um, probably probably the most skilled uh, professor of econometrics and uh, education policy. He's based at Stanford University. He's the one that did, Hugh, about 15 years ago, that great analysis on what teacher quality or the lack of teacher quality costs. 
uh, over a child's lifetime. He's the one that just recently crunched the numbers on what the learning loss we got from the National uh, National Assessment of Education Progress revealed uh, due to the sh- shutdowns. And as I was putting it towards the break, it's uh, reducing children's uh, lifetime earnings by $70,000 per child during their lifetime, costing this country about $30 trillion over the next 100 years. Think we could use that for our debt? Think we could use that for our budget deficit? Anyway, uh, talking about what happens when you uh, lose productivity, when you lose life, when you lose the opportunity to what I and all, I think you have always thought was our ultimate way of getting ourselves back onto the course of uh, responsible and sober spending, which is growth. Obviously, cutting spending and marrying it to economic growth. This was the recipe early on. We seem to have lost track of it. I'll give it back to you. Well, during the Reagan administration, of course, Ronald Reagan was made fun of for the supply side economics. That is to say, grow the economy and that growth will generate you a bigger revenue. tax base. Yeah. Correct. Well. At this stage, given the out of control spending we've got, I don't know that that's even possible. Certainly the trajectory we've had for growth up until about 2008 when what, who got elected then um, when our trajectory changed significantly. Yeah. Uh, the the economic growth curve shifted downward, uh, and that has brought us significantly less growth and, as a result, less tax revenue and less prosperity generally. That's been true across the world as a result of the ripple effect of the U.S. economy and, and its impact on the rest of the world. But I would say that let's start thinking about how we got here. And in your monologue, you talk about... Uh, what's happened to our youth in terms of drug abuse and use and the results from that. And it reminds me of, again, I I don't want to harp on we told you so, but it was Nancy Reagan who started her campaign, Just Say No to Drugs, and was belittled for it by the left. And nonetheless, with drug czar Bennett and a lot of effort, we took the uh, glitz out of drug abuse and moved the needle significantly. You worked with Secretary Bennett and helped in these issues and have committed a huge part of your lifetime to drug issues and rehabilitation and prevention. And it's that prevention piece that we've completely walked away from. We're now dealing with the rehabilitation and what we do in the aftermath of letting people destroy their lives, pretending that it's uh, a victimless crime. The reality is, and I think you pointed this out uh, in a in a recent uh, podcast. Oh, with, with uh, Josh Hammer, yeah, wasn't that good? Yes, it was terrific. And that is that there are lots of victims to these problems. A human being destroying themselves has rippling effects on their entire family and the entire society, and the costs of uh, the damage that they do to themselves that we then feel that we need to address. Not to mention, of course, the direct impacts on other people. Uh, automobile accidents, accidents at work. Emergency the real, department visits, the, costs of rehab and uh, recovery for people that can't afford it, you bet. Well, I'm, I'm circling that there are real damages to other people yeah. from actual activity when somebody is uh, under uh, the uh, influence of drugs. Murder, mayhem, all kinds of, of things. All of that. And so this is one example of where we could put some decent amount of weight and have a real impact on the society's trajectory. Where does that all come back to? I would add that maybe we need to focus on the fact that we allowed our universities to head down roads of social gaming and 
policy development in political realms that have undermined the entire sense of this society. You point out frequently that uh, on our effectively report card on how our kids are doing, that 50 percent of our 17 and 18 year olds are graduating seniors fail in American history. They have no idea what the founding principles of this society are, and yet they're steeped in what is political correctness. That's tied to everything else that's going on. We fail to train our students about the impact of drugs. And now, as you've pointed out, we've got advertisements saying it's it's okay to use, just use safely. I mean, to have... Start small, do it with friends. Exactly. To have a real um, piece advertising this quote, quote, don't be ashamed you are using, be empowered that you are using safely, unquote. Now, that's in an advertisement in New York City. Sponsored by the Department of Public Health. That's an outrage. It's an outrage. That we are telling people that they are empowered by using drugs as long as they use them safely. That's the same message we gave people that they're empowered to destroy uh, retail malls because they're outraged about uh, George Floyd. This kind of messaging is nuts, and we should be calling that out. But we also need to come back to saying, what's the positive direction we go? Mm -hmm. And, Seth, you're on that track in terms of now working diligently to start messaging to youth that the use of drugs leads you down paths that are permanent and reduce your trajectory for life. People have made too much fun of us for saying you got three rules of life. Stay in school. Don't get pregnant and don't use drugs and alcohol. And then you get belittled for that because it's not fashionable. And somehow we are demeaning groups of people uh, who apparently engage in that behavior. Well, we know what behaviors lead to bad outcomes. And we need to start spending some of this society's time focusing yet again on those social issues that are at the core of what it means to be a decent human being and be successful. Thanks for putting it that way and tying it together, Hugh. Ben Franklin uh, famously said or said a quote that became famous that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And it turns out when you break out the costs of rehabilitation and recovery, if you can get someone to rehabilitation and recovery. Um, which is a big if. Which is not a guaranteed proposition. Exactly right. That itself is Russian roulette. But if you can get them to rehab and recovery, there's about a 60 percent failure rate once you get them into rehab and recovery. But if you can get them through that, the expenses and costs are about 10 to 1 when you think about what it costs to do a simple prevention message versus what it costs. It's an old line. It's attributed to Frederick Douglass. It wasn't him, but the line is true nonetheless, that uh, it is easier to build strong boys rather than heal broken men. Let me take the quick commercial break, and you and I will come back on other angsts in our society. I'm Seth Liebson. He is uh, Hugh Hallman, and we'll be right back. That would be about Elizabeth Taylor. One's on the way, an old uh, Loretta Lynn song written by, of all people, Shel Silverstein. 
Remember the Giving Tree? Shel Silverstein wrote a few country songs in his time. You remember the Giving Tree? I do, but I didn't know Shel Silverstein wrote that. He wrote that, and he wrote another song. I'm sure you know, "A Boy Named Sue" for Johnny Cash. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He um, he was an interesting guy. Not altogether someone we would want to salute, but an interesting guy. I was making the point, and this is interesting to me, Hugh. And you touched on it in your opening uh, comments. I don't know if the New York Times these days. Uh, is um, is directing the media as to what the liberal message should be. But it seems clear to me now with two stories, they are at least sending signals and semaphores as to what it's okay to concede as part of the, um, shall we say, kosher conversation in America. About two weeks ago, they did a massive story on diversity, equity, inclusion uh, uh, seminars and trainings that a lot of corporations and firms go through, showing that the research doesn't show that it does any good and, in fact, may increase racial resentment. That blew me away. How many years have we been saying that? Ten? Maybe more? And then this morning, piece that you and I were both taken uh, with, where the New York Times headline was, Students Lost One-Third of a school year to pandemic study finds. Well, uh, that's one study. Uh, the other study, the NAEP study, uh, found that they lost two years of education. You're an educator. You've built schools. Hugh, you know how hard we have struggled to make education advances in this country. Um, the spending that goes into our education system is about $800 billion a year, all in K through 12. And up until about two years ago, as you look at those NAEP, those national assessment tests, we're pretty much flat, 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 flat. We're not making a lot of gains in math and reading. Uh, well, here it wasn't flat. Last year came in, it dipped down. This is unheard of in an advanced society. This is um, this is this is an untold miserable achievement that you would find in third world, if we can still use that phrase, third world countries. They have declining scores. They have declining life expectancy. Not a country that that spends $5 trillion on education and health. We have some real problems here, and it's not the spending. It's the messaging, and it's the commitment to what's important. What's important is in education, I think, been lost. What's become important, and we saw this throughout COVID, was the interests of Randy Weingarten and the teachers' unions, not the interests of the children and not the interests of their parents and not the interests of their country. I think we can talk about this also with the sexualization and racialization of children. My only point is it seems like our focus is entirely misprioritized. I think our focus is, um, shall we say, upside down when it comes to building the kind of society we want and focusing on things we used to say were important, our children in our schools. I think to pick that up would be to start at the very beginning of this, that we have universities that are now training teachers. And what those universities are training teachers to do is not to teach our youth uh, about the baseline things that need to be learned, but about the social left view of the universe. So we had, as you just noted, 10 years of training people about how to teach about diversity and uh, make folks more sensitive. And it turns out that it number, number one doesn't work and number two actually may have a reverse effect. It matters how we are teaching our teachers to teach and what those teachers are then subsequently teaching. And the numbers demonstrate pretty clear to us that we're going backward. And we're not making any progress. So a lot of effort of our society should be focused on not just what's going on in K-12, because that's where the action has been. And lots of people, parents now showing up at school board meetings, realizing 
what's being taught to their children uh, during the COVID period because they watched their children not learn uh, at their Zoom meetings with their teachers and what was actually being not taught. Uh, so we now recognize what's going on in K-12 education, and this is a generalization because I ran schools. Oh, there are some great schools. Let's and not. we had a very different approach no. and a very different outcome. Uh, but in terms of what generally is being taught, it's not what you and I and those of us of our age and older were taught in school. And as a result, we're getting a lot of socialization kind of activity that's going on that has nothing to do with learning the material and information one needs to learn for life. I'm going to stop you right there because I want to go to a break. Let me get in a, a message as we go to break, and I'm going to give you something that will have your jaw on the floor and tee up to tee off on when we come Right back. As I go to break, let me put in a word for our sponsors at Y-Refi. You've heard me talking a lot about them, and if you still have questions about them, they want you to call them. They will connect you with other Arizonans and Phoenicians who have invested with them and are seeing great returns for their investment. 888-Y-REFI-34. That's 888-Y-REFI-34. Think about your IRA. If you would like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or Joe Biden's economy, you can invest with Y-REFI through an IRA or other qualified funds and keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax deferred. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman is my uh, in-studio guest and he was going off on um, how we now train teachers versus how they used to train teachers, the kind we grew up with versus... uh, and it's not everywhere. I, I, I don't want people to, under, to think that I am condemning every school and every teacher. There are some good ones. Uh, the unfortunate thing is even the good ones, maybe even some of the best ones. I don't know if you were gone when you were gone, you saw what was going on at Th- Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia, which is the best public school in America. I had all these Asian Americans who were becoming national honor students and the principals weren't letting the families know because, God forbid, it would make other people and other children who weren't achieving feel badly, uh, feel bad. But listen to this. This is from a, uh, an educator in Wisconsin, a teacher in Wisconsin named Daniel Buck. A piece he wrote in the Wall Street Journal talking about his master's degree in education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This is, again, graduate school, okay? Not undergraduate school, not high school, not kindergarten. Graduate school. We made Black Lives Matter friendship bracelets. We passed around a popsicle stick to designate whose turn it was to talk while professors compelled us to discuss our life's traumas. We read poems through the lenses of Marxism and critical race theory in preparation for our students doing the same. And our final project was an acrostic poem or in the alternative, we could choose to do ironic rap videos. This is master's degree in education. He said he then thought his program was unique. He studied 15 other sample schools and it was all very similar. Sounds like a kindergarten curriculum, but you know what? That is the dumbing down of America because that's what we are training teachers in these ed schools at master's degree level to pass down through the K-12 system. And that's the point. And so now we have turned our children over to people who are being trained to be teachers of social activity that isn't relevant to much of life and is only important in the in the teaching of it 
uh, to the hard left. That is not to say the lessons one needs to learn in life about diversity and all these important issues aren't important. But the purpose of school is to train minds to think and think critically and use that ability to succeed in life, not to be taught how to think about certain things and to think those things. So if we start with the problem, we've got universities now teaching teachers to teach badly. It should not be a surprise to us that we have a lot of bad teaching going on and as a result, a lot of bad results. What I'm more disturbed about, actually, is that we, in this process of shutting down our schools for COVID, did something worse than, and you use the phrase, learning loss, and I object to it every time you do. You can't lose something you didn't get. Nice. Thank you. It's learning failure. We failed to teach our children. And we did it for a whole host of reasons that had nothing to do with protecting them from a disease. The numbers were clear then. They're clearer now. That was all nonsense. We were doing it to protect other people when we could have created solutions to protect those people while still teaching our children in person and in school and avoiding the massive failure to teach and the massive emotional damage we've done to children, as well as the drug addiction and other kinds of consequences that resulted from the lockdown of our schools. But the one thing we are not paying attention to nearly enough and I'd say almost at all, is that we've trained an entire generation of students and a whole lot of young adults how not to work. Generating the character it takes to have stick-to-itiveness, to have some longevity in your efforts, to go the marathon that it often requires to succeed in life, working hard hour after hour, day after day sometimes, is now a lost art. Unlearning those lessons occurs much more quickly than getting them taught in the first place. And as an educator, I can just as an example explain when you bring a student out of a typical traditional uh, public school into the kinds of environments that I was creating where students actually had homework, where they would have to spend time studying out of school, and the number is effectively this, for every hour in the classroom, a student would have about two hours of outside of class work. Put that into your typical traditional public school model these days. It doesn't exist. Well, in that first year, a sixth grader or a seventh grader coming to our schools would, as I would have to counsel parents, your child is going to have a shock. They're going to be very upset at you that they're spending time out of school studying. It's a terrible thing. To have to spend time doing that. And it takes a year or more to train a child to become accustomed to, accept, and then feel good about putting their mind, that child's mind to that learning process. But once you train that, those students carry that for the rest of their lives. But that can be unlearned. And it's unlearned relatively quickly. So when our students would graduate from our schools and go on to college, the typical report, even from the student who had the greatest challenge in the school, was how bored they were in university because the curriculum was not particularly challenging. And my advice as they were graduating always was, do not unlearn these lessons. You can spend your time and study and do what you need to do to learn the material well, 
and then put your extra time to good uses. Unfortunately, too many students still learn the bad choices because university environments are then filled with drugs and alcohol and other kinds of abuses that then untrain those students about how to continue to succeed. Yeah, it's easy to it's easy to make uh, distraction the norm and the mean. I, I think when COVID first came, my first monologue, we shut down businesses before we shut down schools. We shut down work before we shut down learning. And I think my first monologue on it was about the work ethic that we were about to destroy. Uh, and we have. And, and we have. We now have Nick Eberstadt's done the numbers. Uh, Nick Eberstadt points to um, working age males, 25 to 54. If you who are not looking for work and they are not working, non-working, working age males who are also not looking for work, if you add them to our unemployment numbers, we're at Great Depression levels. But on the young side, yeah, we have destroyed the work. Work is a virtue, and I think men particularly need work. They need to be busy. They need to learn work. And I think children naturally want to also some of their favorite pastimes or some of their favorite games in even the kindergarten grade are things like playing store or having a lemonade stand. Kids want to naturally do that. We have given and enforced the unnatural upon what their natural inclination was. And now we um, have removed the organ and demand the function. Back to C.S. Lewis. And we've then handed them electronic devices to make them feel better and fill their time. Right, right, right. So what was the answer to COVID in schooling? More screen time. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly right, Hugh Hallman. Gosh, I forgot I must, how much I missed you. Welcome back. Thank you for letting me be here. You betcha. my recovery. <laughs> we process our resentments in public. Why not? I'm Seth Leafs, and he's Hugh Hallman. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us, Hugh Hallman. Thanks for coming in again. Welcome back. Glad to have you back. Uh, just thinking about that last comment we made, I think the saying uh, is as old as uh, as old as Chaucer that idle hands are the devil's workshop, and uh, that might be that might just be the capstone to the conversation you and I were just having. But closing and shutting down everything, rather than opening and growing and energizing and entrepreneurializing things, is just not. Not the country we grew up to believe in, we grew up to think was the country that could succeed. You know, Abraham Lincoln famously called this country the last best hope of earth. He took that from Jefferson's first inaugural, where Jefferson called us the best hope of the world. And as you were talking about the way other countries are looking at us, they still may think of us that way. And do. And do. We owe an obligation to ourselves to meet their expectations because I don't want them looking at us and thinking that we're on the decline. Turns out at the end, what we're doing isn't just not good. What we're doing to ourselves isn't just not good. Thinking about what I was saying earlier about what young children naturally want to do, it's also not natural. And the whirlwinds from these convulsions probably aren't over. Um, There is one task here, one task. Mother Teresa said, when you, when, you, um, when you lose something, the most important thing is not to lose the lesson. Let us not lose this lesson. We're probably resilient enough, and the antibodies here are probably strong enough to kick in for some kind of repair and, uh, and some kind of, um, some kind of uh, re- repatriation 
of our of our of our ethics and our ethos we probably have a huge capacity for self-renewal here but if we don't learn the lessons of what we did wrong we'll never get on the road to writing them again folks thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us until tomorrow i am seth liebson god bless you all and class dismissed Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.